Well, this morning is Sunday. It is September 21st, 2008. We're in a post-Ike Houston at the moment. And uh, all anybody seems to be able to talk about is recovering from Ike and Ike and Ike. And I'm tired of Ike. I don't like Ike. So I thought this morning we would talk about something else. Our title this morning is Mushroom Cloud. Not a cloud from smoking mushrooms. You don't smoke them anyway. You make tea, right? So I have to ask because I wouldn't know anything like that, Gabriel. Mushroom cloud. Mushroom cloud doesn't appear in the Bible. The way that it appears in your Bible is called pillar of a cloud. This word in Hebrew is amud anan. And it turns out that there's nine words in the Bible for pillar. I couldn't memorize them all, so I picked the first one that it occurs. And this is not just a pillar like uh, those posts out there or like a Roman column. Basically, it means a cylindrical shape column or object. And when the Israelites are describing something that they're seeing, they say it looks like a pillar of a cloud. Well, what does that mean? And I was struggling with a way to kind of wrap my mind around some of what we'll see in the Scripture. One of the things that you're going to see in the Scripture is that a cloud goes before Israel during the day. And at night. How many of you have followed clouds at night? Yeah. You can see them during the day pretty easily. But at night, that's kind of on. And then how many would describe a cloud that is shaped like a pillar? Then when you look at all the functions of this cloud, it became pretty evident. This cloud was shaped like a big umbrella or a big mushroom. And I'll show you that. Turn with me to Exodus 13. Amud Anon. Pillar of a cloud. Tell me when you're in Exodus 13. In Exodus 13... We have just completed the Passover. And we're going to pick up with uh, the 19th verse here. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear on oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. I don't want to digress here. But the bones of Joseph could not stay in Egypt because Joseph believed that he would be resurrected from among the dead and a body that would never die. And he wanted to be resurrected with his brothers in Israel. After leaving Succoth, we don't have to tell you why they left, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Get this. This same cloud looks like a cloud during the day. But it's all of the time fire. So at night when it's dark, it's obvious that it's fire. During the day when you're looking at it, it looks more like a cloud because it's got wash against the sun. You're going to find out that it's not two different things. It's not one thing at night and one thing during the day. The only thing that changes its appearance is its setting. And they could travel day or night following this. In other words, regardless of the circumstances, the people could follow God. And watch what happens. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Heroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Bel Safon. Does that seem pretty specific to you? I mean, we couldn't pick any more points on the compass. We already have three cities that they have to camp by and then pinned in against the sea. 
Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around in the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. Before we move on to our next scripture, there's a couple of things that I want you to see. Number one is this cloud appeared to guide them. During the day, it, it was to guide them. At night, it was also to do that. But secondly, to give them light. Thirdly, he said it is always in front of the people. That's because the people are following it, and to follow something, it needs to be out in front. Now, this cloud that is God's presence, a presence of fire later... By the way, the word Shekinah never appears in the Bible. But this is a word that the Jews gave this cloud. In their writings, they said, you know, this cloud is more than a cloud. It's filled with the glory and significance of God. And it shows up in the temple. It shows up on the tabernacle. It envelops the people. And we want a word for it that describes its weight, glory, significance, the all-powerful presence of God. And they called it Shekinah. So this Shekinah cloud is always in front of the people. And it has led them to a place where they are hemmed in by three cities and a sea. That's pretty much surrounded. God did this specifically so that people would look and see the circumstances and go, the people of God are completely hemmed in. And then what did He say that He would do? He said that His glory would be revealed through them. It's during the times in our lives that following God's leading, we have gotten ourselves into a position where we feel completely hemmed in that there is a chance for God's glory to be truly revealed. Isn't it interesting that through all of these storms, all of these problems... We meet people and do things we would not do on a normal day. I have a neighbor across the street that I've barely spoken to unless he was angry at me. We've called him bent grass for years because one time I drove my tires over his grass. Didn't rut it, didn't tear him up, it just bent the grass. And this greatly afflicted him. He was angry. And so for years, I'd wave and he didn't even look up. Uh, recently he told me that he didn't respond to my waves because he couldn't hear. I haven't figured that out yet. Uh, he said when he's not wearing his hearing aid, he doesn't see me wave. But because of the storm, all of a sudden we have a reason to talk. And in our front yard, we're starting to see the glory of God revealed in that situation. And the man's making apologies, and I'm having an opportunity to repent, and suddenly there's a reconciliation. This didn't happen until both of us felt a little hemmed in with no power, no water, and our house is in trouble. It gave us a reason to converse. Turn with me to Exodus 14. You had to turn a long ways, didn't you? Fourteen, nineteen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them. Did you see that in the 13th chapter it was always in front? He makes it a point so the pillar of cloud was always in front of them. But now they're in a place where they're hemmed in by three cities in a sea and something is squeezing them. All of Pharaoh's army is pushing up against the rear. In fact, God put them in a position much like this little alcove over here where there was nowhere for them to go. The left, the right, forward, 
There was nowhere for him to go, and Pharaoh approached from the rear, and he did it on purpose. He wanted Pharaoh to think that it was easy pickings. And then the God who is always leading His people forward, always in front of them, did something. It says that there was an angel in this cloud. The angel that the Bible calls the angel of the Lord's presence. For the first time, and the only time in Scripture ever written about, He moves from in front of them, leading them, to being behind them, protecting them from the attacker. Our God dwells in a cloud of glory that the Jews call the Shekinah. And the only time that His presence is not leading us forward, showing us the places to go, is when something threatens to destroy us from the rear. And then the very nature of our God is that He moves between us and our problems. This is a good God, is it not? Yeah, he really is. Watch what else he does. Then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front of them and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so that neither went near the other all night long. The presence of God in our lives can shed light in any situation, period. And at the same time, the presence of God can shed darkness in others' lives. Have you ever been somewhere? Maybe you decided to start a business or some venture of your own, and everywhere you turned, it seemed to slam in your face. Everything that you did, it felt like you were surrounded by darkness. The presence of God is not just something that envelops your life and pats you on the back and says you're wonderful. His primary purpose in our lives is to lead us in the direction that we should go. And when we're in a position of danger, He will show us by a lack of peace, a lack of feeling His presence, a darkness that in Egypt they said it could be felt to do something so that we'll move and go a different direction. Can you think of a very important man in the New Testament who was moving in directions that God's presence was not leading him, and so God provided for him feelings that would change him, change his course, his direction? This is exactly what Paul says in his testimony when the Lord speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the goads? The goads in his life were not God reaching down from heaven with a powerful stick poking him. The goads in his life were that feeling of God's protection, God's illumination, God's comfort, his leading, were gone at moments in his life because he was veering off course. And it was a chance to get him to run back to the presence of God. And God met him right where he was on that road between him and the thing that would harm him. See, if he makes it all the way to Damascus and delivers those letters, he has more blood on his hands. There's something wrong. So God steps between him and the adversary to make a difference in his life. If you're the note kind of taking person, the next few things that we're going to do is see that God's presence will always lead you to what is best. That's number one. Number two... God's presence will always protect you from the world. And the third is God's presence will bring light 
into dark places. Turns me to Numbers 19. Only Darren's turning? Oh, the rest of you are writing. Praise God for that. I'm glad you wanted to learn today. God will lead you into what is best. I said Numbers 19. I meant 9. Numbers 9. In 9.15, on the day of the tabernacle, the tent of testimony was set up. The cloud covered it. The reason that we say that this cloud must be mushroom-shaped is because it appears as a column. A column of fire during the day that looks more like a cloud because of the wash of sunlight and things. And at night when darkness is all around, it's a blazing column of fire. But at times, it descends upon Israel's tent of meeting to show them something. When it descends, it means God's presence is here. Come and meet with me. How awesome would it be to travel around in ancient Israel and see a visual representation of God and then have it settle upon the earth and say, come and meet with me. Anybody here would not like to experience that? This is exactly what the incarnation of Jesus is. He is what is God's presence in the third and highest heaven come to the earth in a form that you can meet with. And we share fellowship. What we call in Greek in here is koinonia. This is when we're sharing God's presence in our fellowship with each other in here. I say that the cloud must be mushroom because it settles and covers over this camp like it envelops it, like a big umbrella. On the day of the tabernacle, the tent of testimony was set up. The cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud covered the tabernacle. looked like fire. This is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it. At night, it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. When it moved, they moved. Why? Because they're the people of God and they want to meet with God. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out and at His command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time... The Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days. At the Lord's command, they would encamp, and then at His command, they would set out. Sometimes the cloud stayed only from evening till morning, and when it lifted in the morning, they set out. Does this seem a bit redundant to anybody? I mean, it's, it's nearly difficult to read. The cloud stayed, they stayed. The cloud went, they went. And then we've done this now, what, four times, and we're going to do it two more? Why do you think the Scripture would be so redundant about something? Do you think that maybe in their lives what we're supposed to be seeing, the importance of being led by God's Spirit, His presence, His power? We don't have the right to camp anywhere He says not to camp. We don't have the right to stay anywhere He's told us not to stay. If you don't think people have done this, then why have we named our churches after people that have not been alive in 300 years. God's presence moved mightily through their lives. Amazing. And we set up camp there. But when God's presence moved on, doing something in the earth relevant today, we're still camped back there. 
if you think it's only a particular denomination, how many times in our lives have we gotten the habit, I don't know, of sitting in the exact same place in church because we had a good experience right here on the front row? Isn't that amazing? I had an experience with Jesus that all of you know about, so I won't bore you with the details. But I went back to the same place in the same room many times, over and over and over, hoping to duplicate the same experience. Our God, by definition, is moving. In fact, when we say Ruach HaKodesh, the Hebrew words for the Spirit of God, Ruach means a moving wind, like breath. Even if you say it in Greek, pneumos, it's where we get the term pneumatic for air-driven tools. By definition, He has to be moving to be God. His name means that He's on the move. The real question is, do we move with Him or do we camp where it's comfortable for us? You can imagine that one of the reasons that it says what it says here is because if you camp for a year in one place, you don't expect to wake up the next day and God have moved on. Why wouldn't you? Well, because for 365 days He had been content to stay there. What made today any different? Why are air traffic control towers raised? How about, uh, have you ever seen a college football um, practice field? They have these towers that the coaches stand on so they can watch the play formations. Usually, if, if a college is of any size or a professional team, they'll put people in the press box with radios down to the field. Why do we do that? God's presence be above us in a way to be seen above us and yet being willing to meet with us means He has a view that you don't have. This means that when He says it's time to move on, you don't sit and debate it or form a committee or ask for the approval of your parents or friends. You simply do what He says do, trusting that He can see something that you can't. Has anybody in here ever baked anything? Yeah. I haven't. But I have heard that if you hear of a recipe that you really like, usually because you've tasted something that is really good, and you seek them out and say, Hey, man, i got to have the recipe for your brownies. When she gives it to you, what are you going to do with that recipe? You're going to follow it to the T because you want the same results, right? But if you thought the brownies were so-so, maybe a little salty, I don't even know if salt are in brownies, but... You would reduce the salt if you thought, you know, those things were kind of powdery. You might put less flour or starch or whatever you ladies put in brownies and men too. What is that showing? It's contempt for her recipe, isn't it? It means that you think she's all right, but I mean, she doesn't have the monopoly on how to cook a good brownie. Doesn't it mean that? When we do this with God's Word when we pick and choose what part of the recipe we want to follow, we're showing contempt for the cook. We're showing that we don't really trust. Now, having said something else, if you do everything that you can to follow the exact recipe, with all of your heart, you're trying, say, I don't know how much a pinch is. I mean, God's fingers are pretty big, and He said pinch. How much is a pinch? Does this look like a pinch? And He says a pinch is this much. And He says a pinch is only this much. But we are trying to put whatever we think a pinch of salt is in the dish. God will credit you 
with whatever you need because you're trying, you're showing that He is your God and you're following His direction. This is what grace is. Grace is not, it calls for eggs, but I don't like them. That's not grace. And I don't like eggs, unless they're in brownies and then I'll eat them. Okay, let's pick back up here. We need to finish the incredibly redundant in camping and lifting. Verse 21, Sometimes the clouds stayed only from evening till morning, and then when it lifted, in the morning they set out. Whether by day or night, whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in the camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out at the Lord's command. They encamped, and at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order, recipe, in accordance with the mitzvah's commands given through Moses. How did he say that they obeyed the Lord's order and commands? He showed that they obeyed the Lord's order and commands because they proved that they were being led by His presence. Now, in this day, you could literally see whether or not they were being obedient because there is a giant atomic-looking mushroom cloud that they're following. Imagine that you were in the cities around uh, this desert, right? You're on the mountains and you're looking, and you see millions of people marching at night with a giant glowing atomic cloud in front of them. And then every once in a while it stops, and that thing seems to envelop their place of worship. Do you think that would be kind of conspicuous? I think that would get your attention, wouldn't it? Should we be any less conspicuous when we're led by God's presence? How about this? He said, well, who can really know? He says he's filled with the Spirit. They say they're filled with the Spirit. This doctor says everybody's filled with the Spirit. Do you think that the people in this day had any trouble determining whether or not the Israelites were being led by God? So why do we have so much trouble determining what God's leading is? We have to learn to look at something beyond just our natural eyesight, saints. We have to. Our direction in life has to be derived from the recipe God's given us. It has to be derived from intimate time with Him saying, Lord, I don't want square wheels. I want to roll wherever You tell me to roll. But I tell you, we're built to prefer square wheels. I did it. In fact, ask people, why do you do that? They'll say, well, because my parents did it. Well, why'd they do it? Well, their parents did it. Well, great. Then let's all just camp on it all the way back to Adam. How did Adam do? Well, initially not so well. Square wheels don't get anywhere with God. God is on the move. You know His throne is described in the Bible as having intersecting wheels that no matter what direction the throne is moving moving forward, no engineers ever figured that out. The idea is that no matter what direction God is moving, He's moving forward. And why would His throne have wheels on it? Because He's on the move. And our job is to follow Him wherever He says for us to go. Turn to Deuteronomy 1. Do you like how I've arranged this so that you can turn from left to right in your Bible? I'll make it easy on you. In Deuteronomy, at the beginning of this book, Moses is chastising the people. Because what has happened is they've gotten right up to the place following God for a couple years now. 
Every time he lifts, they break camp. Every time he settles, and can you imagine if it was only one day? Have you ever gone uh, camping? Yeah, Adam's never been. The rest of you have. When you have to set up a large campsite, what if you only stayed an hour? And then somebody said, you know, let's move over there. And then you moved over there, and they went, you know, I kind of liked it back where we were. This path in the desert in Israel, if you ever see Israel's wanderings by the cities that they mention, it looks like they're literally, hmm, how about there? No, over there would be better. No, maybe back here. It is a wandering path. That could be difficult to trust. In fact, you could be pretty frustrated if you got to one place and you didn't get to stay quite 24 hours. Do you know how hard it was to set up that tabernacle? I mean, you go read the intricate details sometimes. It is amazing. And then don't forget, you've got to have sacrifices and stuff going on all the time. You might could say, Lord, would you give us a day to rest? And he said, I did, the Sabbath. I said, but Lord, we're priests. <laughs> it's harder on the Sabbath. It could be hard to follow. So God is now speaking through Moses, chastising the people. He says, look, I brought you right up to the promised land, but you didn't want to go in. And you didn't want to go in because you didn't believe that my leading was best for you. You believed what your eyes told you, which was that you were too small and unable to take this land. So pick up with me then in the 32nd verse. In spite of this, in spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in a cloud by day to search out the places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. God had been moving, showing them every step of the way where they should go. They had water. They had food. Sometimes He had to rain it down from heaven. They were delivered from every army that they ever faced. Even their sandals did not wear out. And yet they face an obstacle where God's presence has lifted and said, Go. And they would not go with God. Can you relate to that in any way? We don't want to admit to being able to relate to that in any way. But how about the last time you saw somebody in a wheelchair and your heart started to thump and you started to think about scriptures where people had been healed? How willing were you to go? Were you filled with the thought, what if they don't get out of the wheelchair? Y'all, I've been there a lot. I'm a pastor. I'm in this position not just twice a week, but almost every day of my life. I know exactly what it's like. And the first thing the devil does is say, is that really God's will? Well, they could see a cloud in front of them. First came the natural. Now comes the spiritual. You can't always see a cloud in front of you. But we have to get in touch with God's Spirit so that we can feel what way that cloud is moving. The greatest mistake American Christians have ever made is try to embrace God purely in their intellect. It didn't work in any of the Reformation countries. You know, Germany's been dead since a hundred years after the Reformation because it's an intellectual gospel. The only way to succeed and to know the places God wants you to camp is to get in touch with His Spirit. And how do you know how His Spirit is leading you? His Word tells you. The first thing we need to know is that when God says camp, we camp. He leads us. The presence of God will always lead you. 
Turn with me to Psalm 105. Let's look at His protection in the cloud. In Psalm 105, by the way, if you were wandering around the desert in a time before airplanes or weather balloons or blimps, wouldn't you like somebody who had a 30,000 foot view to say, don't camp over there, there's cactuses, cacti. Don't camp over there, the Amalekites are close. Don't camp over there. And even though it seemed like you're wandering, if you had a walkie-talkie to a pilot in the sky, wouldn't you listen to what he said? How messed up would our air traffic control system be right now? They say that there's 50,000 Americans above the continental U.S. at any given point during any day. That's how many are in planes right now above us. If the pilots all second-guess their air traffic controller. What would that look like? That would be pretty chaotic, wouldn't it? If we could open our eyes and see what has happened to our churches, that's what you would see. Every man goes his own way. It's like the time period of the judges in the Bible. Are you all in Psalm 105? In Psalm 105, let's pick up in 37. Then he brought out Israel laden with silver and gold. And from among the tribes, no one faltered. Egypt was glad when they left because dread of Israel had fallen on them. He spread out a cloud as a covering and a fire to give light at night. A cloud as a covering. God's presence during the day did one more thing. You remember in Psalm 91, it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Where did they get that idea? How about Psalm 121? The sun shall not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. Where did they get these ideas? God's presence, like a loving paternal figure, shaded Israel everywhere that they moved. In other words, in their travels, with Him leading, as long as they followed Him, they were dwelling in the shadow that He cast because He stayed between them and anything that was harmful. And they dwelt in a protective covering of God's shadow. This is what Jesus is alluding to when He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you to Myself. It's the way that a mother bird cups her wings so that her chicks enjoy shade underneath them. This is a picture of a loving, benevolent God. It's also where the Jews get the idea of a hopa. Those of you that have seen Meet the Parents watched Owen Wilson build a hopa. A hopa comes from the idea that God descended upon Mount Sinai in a cloud and that that cloud is God's presence. And when you get married, you want to step under God's leading, under His presence, of your life. Not a bad custom, huh? They're doing their very best to live out something that their ancestors did every day for 40 years. How about this one? Let's go to Isaiah 4. In Isaiah 4, look at the second verse. Y'all sleepy today? Y'all are quiet today. We're going to put our sign back up. It says, Caucasians, please pray for emotion. Some spiritual hot sauce. Yeah, yes. Okay, Isaiah 4, verse 2. 
In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women in Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over the assembly, those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and rain. This is a prophecy spoken about Israel's future yet to come, but it speaks of the days we're supposed to be living in now, where God's presence leads us. And God's presence protects us from the elements in the world by being a shade over us. And in the darkest places in our lives, God's presence provides light. There will be a day in which you can see this. In fact, Revelation says that there will be no sun in the city because there's no need for it. God's presence is the city's light. One more Old Testament scripture, then we'll pull you into something else. Turn with me to Nehemiah, just because it's probably been a while since you turned to Nehemiah. While you're turning, just some land yap. Nehemiah, funny, funny character. At the end, in fact, this was Nick's favorite verse one time when I asked him. At the end of Nehemiah, he meets the men outside the wall and he's upset with them. So he calls down curses on them, beats them, and pulls their hair out. In fact, the King James says, snatch them ball-headed. But that's not what we're reading today. I'm just trying to get you somewhat interested in the book of Nehemiah. You ready? Nehemiah, the ninth chapter and the 19th verse. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. Why would he speak like this? When is Nehemiah written? Nehemiah is written after the Babylonian captivity, sometime after 516 B.C. And what Nehemiah is doing is reflecting on Israel's history, and he says, oh, we were supposed to go into the promised land, and we didn't do it. And yet you didn't stop leading us by your presence. He said, then we were supposed to repent before the Assyrians, and we didn't, but you didn't stop leading us by your presence. Then we were supposed to repent, and so we wouldn't go into the Babylonian captivity, but we didn't, and you still have not stopped leading us by your presence. If you have the idea in your life that you zigged when you should have zagged, so God's presence is not there to lead you, you're wrong. Remember, He leads in two ways. He is light to one side and dark to the other. Even your feeling of a lack of His presence is a way of His presence leading you. Let me say it another way. You can't go anywhere, David said, not in the depths of the earth or in the heights of the heavens and escape God's presence. His presence is around you all of the time. He said He would never leave you or forsake you. You ever been scared of your father? Ever? At some point in your life, you've been scared of your dad, right? When is that usually? When you do something wrong. You see, God's presence is not always warm and fuzzy. I was told recently about somebody hurting. 
And there's compassion and there's mercy for that. That they didn't enjoy worship and stuff because of the way they felt in it. (laughs) I thought, well, if I was doing what my daddy told me not to do, I don't enjoy sitting in his presence either or visiting the principal's office or any other position of authority. Don't be fooled. God will not be mocked. His presence is there to encourage us in the way that we should go. When we're not going that way, you should not feel that encouragement. How do you know the difference between a condemnation, something from the devil that that is smothering you, and a conviction from God that says this is not best for you? The way that you know the difference is what it produces in you. Condemnation says that you cannot do any better than you're doing. You might as well give up right now. Might as well just die. Uh, A great example of this is Judas. He felt sorry for what he did. Wished he hadn't done it. It's not conviction though. It's condemnation because he goes out and hangs himself. That's not godly conviction. Godly conviction is when you go, I'm better than this and God can do better through me. And you want to change. Conviction brings you to repentance. A change. Condemnation allows you to wallow in pity until you die from it. So what else he says? By day the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them in their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Would you really think that it's instruction that a cloud moved or didn't move? But when you're following someone's example, in fact, we were, we were at Bex the other day, uh, and a mother duck was walking across the street, And in step, the little ducks were following her. They're learning to cross the street by stepping where she stepped, walking where she walked. A place of danger, they could be run over, all kind of things could happen, but they're following quite literally in their leader's footsteps. This is the way that God trains us. What if that mother duck was so loving in the way that people think of loving that she never took them anywhere dangerous? How well trained would they be? See, our view of God sometimes is that He will never lead us by any way that's dangerous. We say He doesn't hem us in. He doesn't allow us to face suffering. He doesn't allow us to be pressed or face trouble. All of that is only the devil. Then how is it that you could be trained? His presence, first of all, leads you to what is best. Second of all, it protects you by forming a covering in your life. Have you ever heard whose covering are you under? It's real popular in churches today. I'm under the King of Kings covering because I'm following His leading and He casts a shadow in my presence that I've made it my goal to dwell in. And He's our light in the darkest places. I don't want to read you all of this in Nehemiah, but I do want you to get this. He goes on to talk about all the kingdoms that they defeated while following God's presence. And then look at the 25th verse. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things. Wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. You cannot dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. You cannot dwell in the presence of God without experiencing His great goodness. If you don't think that you're getting everything that you ought to get out of your spiritual life, maybe we ought to spend a little more time in the presence of God and examine 
whether or not some of the darkness we feel is disobedience. I don't know about you, but I hear on TV regularly. I was praying and the Lord said to me, and I was praying and the Lord said to me, and I was praying and the Lord said to me, and everything that the Lord is saying to them is how great they are and how much they're going to have and how much they need to get and how much you'll have if you give to them. That's an amazing thing because I spend an awful lot of time in the presence of God. And maybe I'm a unique creature. Maybe I'm just so much more greatly flawed than the rest of mankind. It works differently for me. But most of his speech towards me is, Eric, I would like you to do this differently. Eric, that wasn't me when you did this. When you said that, you went too far. Those kind of things. And yet, I don't feel condemned or overcome by it. It is a father leading me in his footsteps. Spend some time around me and my children. You'll see that I correct them more than I encourage them. Some people go, oh my gosh. You know, that's harsh. No, it's not. Because as they see that they can do it, as they realize the right way to do it, the fruit is encouraging for them in and of itself. You don't need God to show up and give you warm, fuzzy feelings. You need to walk in His ways enough to see the fruit of His ways. On the note of conspicuous, and I'm not going to read them to you. In Numbers 22, the nations were gathered around and it lists the nations. And Balak goes, these Israelites are amazing. And God's presence is with them wherever they go. And they are licking up all of the nations around them like an oxen licks up grass. Now, that didn't make much sense to us, but an oxen eats a lot of grass. And what it does is it bends down and it grabs it with its tongue and forces it to its mouth and it pulls up roots and all. What Balak is saying in a very ancient way to say it is, they will devour all of the nations and leave nothing left of them. The kingdom of God is going to swallow the entire earth and leave nothing left of the nations of men. Only that which cannot be shaken, God's kingdom, will remain. The reason that Balak knew this is because he could watch from a distance, as could the kings of Moab who came to him. They were watching from the hillsides and they saw that this people moved when God moved and stopped when He stopped. So God's presence was always with them and they were horrified. There's a testimony by a prostitute written about in the book of Joshua. You have to understand she's risking her life to do this and the first thing that she says to these spies, we know that God is giving you this land because we saw what He did to Og. We saw what He did to Sihon. We saw what you're doing to all the nations around you and no nation is like this nation that God is with you. When we follow God's leading and God's presence, it becomes evident to everyone around us that God is with us. And why would that be? Is it because God will always lead you in the most direct route to where you're going? Absolutely not. In fact, one of the reasons that people will know that it had to be God is because nobody else could have gotten there that way if God weren't leading them. Nick's graduation party the other night. 
They're talking about all the ways in which God brought him to the place where he is now. If his family had to sit down when he was a little boy and plan the way in which he would graduate from college, it probably would not include an online university, a stint at a Texas Lutheran school, a stint in uh, Illinois at a uh, master's commission. That's not the most direct route to get what he obtained. Or is it? Because what he obtained was an experience of learning to follow God. And in the end, it's not the degree he's proud of. It's what God did through him while he was getting the degree. See, sometimes we try to judge God's results too quickly. Well, I did this and it didn't work. I trusted him for a week and all my problems aren't solved. When the nations can look and go, there is no explanation for the way Jacob is acting. I wasn't talking about biblical Jacob. I was talking about this Jacob. I would have picked Jeremiah, but I have the same problem there. There is no explanation for the way that this man is acting. And this could never work for anybody unless God were with them. Who prepares an altar to light it on fire by dousing it with water? Who would do that? And yet God did that through Elijah. Why? Because the God who answered by fire, He is God. That was the test. So, well, what difference does that make, Eric? I'm trying to say that God leads you to do things that look the absolute opposite of the direction you thought you were going. But in the end, His testimony is magnified. In the end, you have an experience that is worth more than the object you were shooting for. Turn with me to John 7. Y'all happy to be in the New Testament? You know, we're going to have to close soon. I'm hungry. In John 7, we have a feast. This feast is called Sukkot. The feast primarily, I mean beyond all the shadow and type, beyond everything else that you'll learn from me about the feast, the feast first and foremost commemorates something. In English it comes to us as Feast of Tabernacles. Why were the Israelites ever in tabernacles? Another way to say it is booths. They were in temporary dwellings while they followed the presence of God around for 40 years in a desert. As soon as they reached the object or what they thought was the object of their salvation, a permanent dwelling, they put the booths aside. But every year, three feasts had to be observed. One of them was the Feast of Tabernacles. And Israel goes up to Jerusalem to commemorate the Feast of Tabernacles. And among many things that they do, the first and foremost thing that they do is they commemorate the time that they had temporary dwellings, so they and they reflect on their time in the desert, following God's leading. And the biggest things that they had to look for in God's leading, what, what things do you need most in the desert more than any other thing? Water. So they had two things. One was following God's presence in a pillar of fire, a great light. And the other was where do we find water? Because if we don't have it, we die. In fact, you might even call it living water. And during the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, 
this was the primary focus on everyone's mind. And something happened. During this time, the people learned to cry out for salvation. The reason that they cried out for salvation during this time was this last event prior to them getting Eretz Israel. This was prior to inheriting the land. See, in Israel, salvation was something natural, temporal. We want to inherit what God said to inherit. Since the Feast of Tabernacles, booths, occurred just before this feast, or just before the inheriting of the land, they saw it as a predecessor to salvation. So they began to cry out, Anna, Adonai, Hoshia, Anna. Hoshia is the word Joshua or Yeshua. They cried, Lord, we beseech you, save us now. And they marched around with their booths, pieces of their booths, seven times around the altar of God. And on the seventh time, they did it seven times. Where might they have got that idea? Because when they started to take the land, this is the way in which God called Joshua to do it. So the setting in Israel is one of enormous excitement. Because when you reach the Feast of Tabernacles, it means salvation is at hand. We're getting our land. We're inheriting it all. Israel's the chief among the nations. It's a time of high celebration. Hillel once said about this in the Mishnah, anyone who has not seen the rejoicing of Sukkot in this life has never seen rejoicing. First thing that they do after celebrating this is on the last day. They sing from Isaiah 12:3, With joy we will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now on the one hand, this water of salvation was something that God provided to them by leading them to a place called Elim where there was palm trees and springs and then to a place where there was a rock that Moses could speak to and water came out of it. On one hand, it was just water that brought salvation, meaning that they didn't die. But it was at this moment when the priests are pouring out of a golden flask into twelve earthen vessels, water, and singing about the water of salvation that Jesus makes this statement. John 7:37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within Him. By this He meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On the one hand, Jesus stands up at a pinnacle moment in the feast. He says, if you're thirsty for water that will really satisfy, that will really bring life, come and drink of Me. But did you notice? He says it will flow from within you. We're always looking for what would satisfy us. And God is always looking for what would satisfy others through us. That's a hint. But we're going to move on to the next thing. The next part of the Feast of Tabernacles was there are four giant menorah in the temple. A menorah is a big golden lampstand. These are big enough that they are 75 feet high, the Mishnah says. They shed so much light that every corner of Jerusalem was said to be lit by their presence when they were lit. They held nine liters of oil each just in the part where the wicks go. And the wicks, by the way, 
were made of the priest's clothing. The priest had to give something of their very substance to bring light to the world. Look at 8.12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In this setting, there is no way to understand Jesus' words other than one way. They had golden candelabras, which they all understood and donated gold to each year, showing that God's divine presence led us in the desert when we were in booths. God's divine presence gave us water out of rocks and out of springs and threw wood into bitter waters and made them clean. These candelabras, these menorahs, are God's presence that led us. And Jesus stands up in the midst of that and says, I am the light, the divine presence that leads you. They understood what He was saying. They begin to question the authority by which He says this. But let me ask you, what event is squeezed right between these two things? Between John 7.37 and 8.12. You may have a note there that says, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts don't have these words. There's a woman caught in adultery, right? Think about this woman for a minute. Is she living in a way that is God's best for her? No. Is she protected from the world? No. Is light shining for her in the darkest places? No. But when she encountered the light of the world, the King of Kings, He leads her to what is best for her. He protects her from flying rocks. He was a cover, a shade for her. And He brought light into the darkest place in her life. See, Jesus is that cloud of God's presence. He says He was the light to the world, but that's not the end of the story. Turn back to Matthew. Matthew 5. And the 14th verse. You are the light of the world. A city on a hilltop cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So what I'm really saying is God's presence has led us into what is best for us. God's presence protects us from the world like being a hopa above our head, shading us from its harmful influence. God's presence brings light into our darkest places. And that's fantastic. But it's only fantastic if we also become like Jesus and that we become that light. How do you do it? You go find people and you teach them what is best for them in their lives. You protect them from the things in the world that would harm them by teaching them God's Word. You be a light for them in the darkest places in their lives. The Proverbs teach us that a brother is born in adversity. How did you come to know Jesus? Did you come to know Jesus when your life was pristine and shiny? 
Did you come to know Jesus when you were praying and realized that you really were such a great person that it would be a shame to deny God your presence all of your life? Probably not. Most of us came to know Jesus during a dark place in life where we were filled with a gripping, powerful sensation that said your best is not good enough. It's funny, we describe that as being away from God's presence. John 6.44 says you can't come to the Father unless His Spirit draw you. You know who brought you to a place where you felt darkness? God did. Because He wanted you to cross over from the side of the adversary into the encampment of His people. And then He would stand between you and the adversary forever. By the way, when they wanted to throw rocks at the women, where do you think Jesus was standing? Not an angel who is God's presence anymore. It's Jesus, and you are supposed to be His body. So if you didn't come to know Him during the revelation of your own supremacy, but in a dark place in life, where do you think that we will find others who are coming to know Him? We need to be a light in their dark places. We need to teach them what is best for them. That rarely happens by telling people you're going to hell. I've done it. Sometimes it's worked. Most of the time it hasn't. A few times it's made me have to duck quickly. As I get older, I've gotten more cautious. I can't duck as fast anymore. Maybe most importantly, you'll never forget if somebody protects you at some point in your life. could be that they protected you physically could be that they protected your reputation. could be that when everybody else was hurling insults upon you, slandering you, they simply refused. If we want to be the light of the world, we do the same thing that God's presence, His mushroom cloud did in the Older Testament. We do the same thing that Jesus did everywhere He went. We teach people the best way to live, living out the Messiah's life. We teach people to dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. Dwell in His presence. And it will protect them from the world. Sun by day and moon by night. And we are a light in people's dark places. You can't do that if all the candles hide in one room. We've been given a unique opportunity, saints. You have things revealed to you that others don't know. That even angels long to look into. Did you hear... As a way to close here, did you hear the way in which your light would shine? They would glorify God when they saw your deeds. This week, let's find some people that are in a dark place and do something that gives them light. Let's find somebody who feels attacked and make them feel protected. Let's find somebody who doesn't feel like they're getting everything out of life that they could get out of it and offer them hope. And we will be like that cloud. We'll be God's presence in their life for that moment. And then we can teach them to have God's presence inside of them the same way that we do us. And the kingdom is multiplied. This is Christianity. This is what we're supposed to be looking to do every day. I'm so proud of you guys for joining me in it. It's not theology. Not doctrine. He didn't stand up and say, be a loudspeaker. He didn't say, do anything that could be heard. The nation saw what Israel did 
and knew God was with them. Matthew 5.14 says people will see your deeds and glorify God. 